0: Good morning. I didn't see it last night when I watched the video, but I noticed it today. Did you see the pickleball and the pickle hat? So You just kind of snuck that in there. I was kind of caught up in the uh, curlers. <laughs> didn't, see, didn't see that other stuff. All right. Well, um, we are in a little short two-week series uh, leading up to Easter and to Good Friday. And uh, And so uh, we're looking at the end of Luke chapter 22 and the beginning of Luke chapter 23 this week, we'll pick up there uh, next week as well. So um, uh, we're going to be addressing a question that at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you will be asking this question, is God's goodness good for me personally? That's the question we're going to be asking today. So because understanding the Bible and our part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 1058 in those Bibles, 1058. So we're going to pray asking God the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word to us, and this prayer is based on John chapter 17. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given for us. We thank you for the invitation to know you more. We ask that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, and give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, sanctify us by your truth, shape us to be a reflection of you in all that we say and in all that we do. Father, we continue to lift up to you uh, the situation in Ukraine, the war Uh, the people of ukraine the refugees the millions of refugees right now the needs that they have we lift up to you the christians churches in ukraine that are meeting seeking to meet people's needs in the midst of suffering themselves for the churches outside of ukraine who are taking in uh, refugees Uh, father we ask uh, that you would continue to guide you would guide world leaders and the de- many decisions that they need to make in response to this. And we pray for peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I always forget how beautiful something is, something in nature. If I try to think about it before I see it, it never is anything, cl- you know, my memory of it is never anything near as beautiful as when I see it with my own eyes. So if I'm, Lois and I are going to go snowshoeing, for example, all I'm thinking about is the cold. And, uh, and so I try to psych myself up by thinking about, it. oh, it's going to be so beautiful when we get out there. And when I get out there, I'm like, yeah, no, reality is so far beyond what my memory of, of, of this is. And um, so something like this, I think, happens also where... We can be gathered together and we can be thinking about God and singing about His goodness and be reading His Word and encouraging one another and have a sense of a vision of God and His greatness and His goodness. And then when we get away from here and we're in a situation, especially in a situation of suffering, a situation of difficulty, of grief, where someone we love is, is going through something really, really serious, it's hard to remember what we experienced here. It's hard to remember what we may have experienced when we were reading our Bibles Early in the morning, and and God in His Spirit was uh, God, the Holy Spirit was speaking to us and and making clear um, His great love and His goodness for us. Um, even you know the whole idea. Even if you know, sometimes we question: Is God really in control? And even if we believe that He's in control, we sometimes wonder personally: Is is God what He is doing? The plan that He is carrying out, the the story that He's carrying out is it actually good for me? Is it actually good for the people that I love? Of course, um, when we forget, and sometimes we do, and we think maybe God's plan isn't good, when we think that way, and, and, and again, many, many go through that in their lives. You may be going through it right now. You fail to receive the encouragement in suffering and in difficulty and grief that God wants to give you, wants to give us in those kinds of situations. And so our love for God begins to fade and it begins to fail. So today's passage is really important for times like that. Uh, And not just today's passage, but all the passages around uh, the passion of the Christ, around the cross, everything leading up to that in Jerusalem are great passages to remember and to remind ourselves of the power of God and the goodness of God, and the love of God, and the beauty of of God When, in those times when God seems far away. Uh, It's a passage, this passage we're looking at today is a passage of Scripture that proclaims not simply that God is powerful, that He's great, and that He's good, but it proclaims that the great God is good, and His good is good for us. So we're going to be circling around that whole idea, the great God, the powerful God, the sovereign God, and Lord, he, He's a great God, and He is good, but He's not just good. His good is good for us, and not just good for us, His good is great for us. Now this passage, if it were new to you, and it might be new to some of you as you are reading it, it, it might come across a simple reading, a surface reading in this passage might suggest that God is not the great God, that He's not a powerful God, that God is a victim, he's not in control, that human evil is greater than the power of God. As we enter into our passage, Jesus has been arrested. And so it's on the night that he has the Lord's Supper um, with his disciples, his last supper with the disciples. He's gone out to pray in the garden while he's out there. These soldiers come and they take him away. Peter has just been in the courtyard of the high priest And he's been questioned about whether he's a follower of Jesus. And three times he denies that he is. And then he realizes it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Exactly what he said wouldn't happen. And he runs away to hide in shame. So we're going to pick up in verse 63 of Luke 22. Where it says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. So they've arrested him. They're now mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. So Luke spares a lot of the details, but uh, you know, our imaginations can go and really should go to what's actually happening to Jesus here. Luke says he was being mocked, he was being beaten, he was blindfolded while this was happening. So imagine he's getting this brutal beating, doesn't know where the next blow is going to come from. He's getting hit in the ears and the nose and the eyes and the throat and the kidneys. Um, They're shoving him to the ground. And all the while they're humiliating him and they're they're mocking him. Imagine what Jesus would have looked like the next morning because it says, you know, they, they did this in the evening, who knows for how long, and Then they began the trial the next morning. Imagine what he would look like as he goes into his trial, black, blackened eyes, bruised throat, uh, maybe tears on, on his face, bloodied. Um, and this is only the beginning. We know he's going to go before Roman authorities, and he's going to get an even more brutal beating. So pick up in uh, verse 67, we continue. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, so this is the the council the religious leaders in his trial if you are the messiah tell us jesus answered i tell you you will not if i told you tell you you will not believe me and if i asked you you would not answer but from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty god they all asked are you then from what he said they come to this conclusion are you then the son of god and they replied you say that i am now That answer is an ambiguous answer. In fact, in the original language, it's just, he says, you say. And so it can be taken in a couple of different ways. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? You have heard it from his own lips. So they take it in a particular way. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar And he claims to be Messiah, a king. All right, so three accusations that they bring to the council. They say, number one, it's the accusation of sedition. He's trying to overthrow the government. The second one, they say, is he opposes paying taxes to Caesar. And thirdly, they say uh, that he claims to be Messiah, a king. All right, so... Messiah means anointed one, and the kings were referred to as messiahs, the anointed one, uh, the one that anointed to be king. Now, the first two lies, the first two are lies. It's not true. He's not overthrowing the government. He's not opposed to paying taxes to Caesar. It's just the opposite. He actually said, pay your taxes to Caesar. But they bring these charges to Pilate, and Pilate Really gl- glomps onto the third one. That's the one that ca- captures his interest. Um, so uh, I should have kept reading. I, I stopped a little short. Pick up in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rode, and they led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man Oh, I did read that. I'm sorry. Third time around sometimes. <laughs> so Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? So that's the one that he... he, he, he holds on to. Um, now, the way that he says it, it's actually, it's mocking. Uh, the way that, again, in the original language, the way that it's written, it puts the pronoun at the very beginning in an unusual way, which means there's the emphasis. So, it's like, you are the king of the Jews? Like, they're looking at him, and he doesn't look like a king. He's, he's beaten, and he's bloodied. He's saying, you are the king of the Jews. He looks pathetic. He doesn't look like anything like a king. And Jesus gives him the same answer from the night before. You say, okay? NIV says, you have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no basis for a charge um, against this man. So the you say is again ambiguous. The Leaders, when he says, when they said, are you the son of God? He says, you say, they take it. They said, we need nothing more. We, you, you're claiming to be divine. Pilate, on the other hand, takes it in a different way. He's like, you say means, okay, you're not claiming to be a king. He takes it that way. Why is he saying, you say, why is he being so ambiguous? Well, it's, it's, it's a theme that runs through the Gospels. Other people aren't going to understand who he is and what kind of king he is. They're not going to understand what, uh, what kind of Messiah he is. And so there's a, a theme that runs through the scholars called the messianic secret, where Jesus says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, that he says over and over again. Not because he's not going to tell people, but because it's not time yet. People aren't going to understand what his messiahship, his kingship is all about. So he's purposely being ambiguous. He's also being very quiet. And we're going to see how quiet he is in the next trial. Uh, it's, it's almost like he's decided these, these people are not really seeking truth. I'm not going to waste a lot of words on these people. I'm not going to necessarily answer all of their questions. So let's pick up on verse uh, 5 uh, where it says, but they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. So Pilate w- wants to let him go. No, 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 no. Uh, he started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. This is spreading. He's, he's spreading this message everywhere. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, Herod was uh, the you know, kind of king of, of, of Galilee under the, Roman, uh, under the Romans and under Pilate, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. So Herod is there probably because it's Passover time. And so that's where everybody is, and that's where everything is happening, and so Herod is there uh, As well. And um, here's an interesting thing. We're about to read the trial of Jesus before Herod. This is the only gospel that records it. Uh, The different all four gospels, they tell a lot of the same stories, and there are stories that some only one gospel tells, sometimes they two might tell a story, sometimes three might tell a story, and one might not tell the story. Just depends on what their sources were and their purpose in writing it. And we know that Luke at the very beginning of his gospel talks about the fact that a lot of what's in his gospel, he's got written sources, and, and, and that's, that's known because there's so many times he's sharing so many words with Mark and Matthew, that the only way you can share that many words is because you have a common written source. And so, but there are, uh, he says he also has as part of his gospel, eyewitness testimony. And so he's gone around and he's interviewed various people. And um, okay, so Luke says, I have eyewitness testimony. One of the things that Luke tells us in his gospel that uh, none of the other gospels talk about, in Luke chapter 8, the very beginning, Luke talks about a group of women who followed Jesus from place to place. They were part of the group of disciples that followed Jesus. Not part of the 12, but part of the group of disciples that followed Jesus. And he names some of them. And he says specifically that these women helped support Jesus financially out of their means, all right? And then he names these women... And you learn by reading what he says about them that these are women of means. These, this is why Jesus didn't have to like, do like Paul did, actually chose to. He worked during the day, ministered at night. And so Jesus didn't have to continue his work. The disciples could leave their work behind because there were wealthy people, specifically some wealthy women, who supported him. Now, one of the women that's mentioned in Luke chapter 8 is a woman named Joanna. And we're told that Joanna... By Luke. He says, Joanna was the wife of Herod's household manager. So a lot of scholars say, what we're about to read here is the eyewitness testimony of Joanna, because Joanna would have seen this, could have seen this. And that's how Luke knows to include this or has the story in order to be able to share it. All right, so verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So Herod's been hearing about these miracles, this Jesus is like a magician. He can make things, you know, change. He can do all this kind of stuff. And so he can feed people. You know, he's heard the stories. And now he's hoping maybe Jesus will do a magic trick for him as well. And so he plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. So you have Jesus just completely silent before Herod. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're there. And they were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies." Again, you see this kind of eyewitness seeing all of a sudden after this, you know, and you can imagine Joanna saying, yeah, you know, after this, Pilate would show up at Herod's residence. And, uh, and they seemed like friends where they used to hate each other. So it's just a, a, a fascinating story. We can thank Joanna for that testimony. So Herod, not getting any answers, he concludes this guy's a joke dresses him in elegant robes, mocks him, same kind of thing. And by sending him with these elegant robes, he's signaling to Pilate, this guy is a joke, <laughs> don't even bother with him. There's nothing, there's nothing to worry about with this guy, he's pathetic. Um, there's nothing scary about this guy. So one way to read this, and if this story is new to you, would be that, that Jesus is powerless, that Jesus is a victim of human cruelty and human evil, and that there's really nothing he can do, that he's a good guy, and God might even be good, but he's powerless to change the circumstances. Now, the reality is that's, that's, not, a, that's not a very helpful or truthful way of looking at this. Because when you're suffering, or when someone you love and you care for his suffering. You don't need a victimized God. You don't don't need, you need a God who is great. You need a God who is in control. You need a God who is powerful. You need essentially a God who is God. By by very definition of what it means to be God is that you're sovereign and you're in control over everything. So I want to explore three questions uh, today. Um, And the first question is, Is God really in control? Is God really in control? Is He this great God that we need in times of trouble and of suffering? It's an important question to really determine and really come to some conclusions conclusions in our minds. So the, the text drives home that God is indeed in control. He's being brutalized by human evil, but He's being brutalized because He is allowing it to happen. So, look at chapter 22 again, verse 64. It says, They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now, that just seems like it's just sharing some facts, but that's actually a um, very subtle way of making a point about God being in control. Because that, that whole scene right there is dripping with irony. They are taunting him to prophesy. If you're so great, if you're a prophet from God, then you should be able to name the person who is hitting you even though you're blindfolded. But as they're hitting him, as they're ripping him apart, they're fulfilling his own prophecy to the disciples about what was going to happen when they went to Jerusalem. And they're fulfilling ancient prophecies, uh, especially in Isaiah, concerning the Messiah And the brutalization that was going to be done to the Messiah. So let's look at what Jesus said to the disciples as they're approaching Jerusalem. It's three times in Luke where he tells them that he's going to die. And this is the third time. And he says, Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him they will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So, as they're taunting him, as they're telling him to prophesy and they're beating him, they are fulfilling his own prophecy. It's dripping in irony, but that's not all. You also see that This is all part of God's plan. This isn't evil in control. This is God completely in control. Look at verse 69 where he's being beaten, but he says this about himself. He says, but from now on, the son of man, the son of man is a term used of a divine um, being in the uh, book of Daniel, and they know that's why they, they know this is a divine person. That's why they say to him, Then are you saying they equate Son of Man with Son of God? Are you saying you're Son of God? He said, But the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? Is that what you're saying about yourself? Um, he gives the ambiguous answer You say, Because they don't know even what that means to be the Son of God. Consider what he told Peter and the soldiers. um, Told Peter when the soldiers came and Peter pulls out a sword, he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. This all happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest him. And Jesus says to Peter, "Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled?" that say it must happen in this way." So Jesus is saying, it's happening this way because it's all part of God's plan. It's been the plan all along. Evil is not in control in this scene. God is still in control. All right, so you have a God who is in control, but the question then that we ask is, uh, but is God good? The God who's in control is good because if He's in control and Jesus is suffering or we are suffering, He can do something about it. But we find in times in our lives when He doesn't do anything about it and the suffering continues. And even worse than us suffering would be seeing someone we absolutely love suffering. So there's some signs in the Scriptures um, and in this passage, that, that, that really um, bring the goodness of God to light. And um, we can meditate on these to remember God's goodness. One, one I'm just going to kind of look at, kind of zoom out. And one of the major ones is the fact that God wants us to question His goodness. God literally wants us to question His goodness. In the Bible, um, we see God as the final judge. He's going to judge us someday. We will be on trial and God will be the judge over us. And yet in God's word in the scripture, time and time again, God's people are portrayed as standing in judgment over God. God is the one on trial. And it's not just like evil kings or just anybody that does this. No, it's people like Moses. It's people like David. It's other psalmists who are questioning God and His goodness. And it's not just that those things are recorded kind of like, isn't that terrible that they did that? No. They are part, they are embedded, these these prayers questioning God's goodness are embedded into the prayer book of Jews and Christians, the Psalms. Not just so that we look at that and say, oh, look how at times they question. No. No so that we will pray prayers that question God's goodness. Why is that? It's because even though God is judge and he will stand in judgment over us, there will be a final judgment. God is not looking for people who just look at him as a judge and just fear him. There should be some fear. But he's not looking for people to just fear him and kind of obey him out of, I don't want to get, you know, I I don't want... God's wrath to come down on me. Uh, he doesn't want people who are just dutiful. Does he want fear? Yes, we are to fear the Lord. He doesn't want us being afraid of him, but he does want us to have that healthy fear. Um, some, some people are, some, some of you are kind of wired in a way that you're very duty-bound. You know, you tell me what to do, and I'm going to do my duty. This is what my role is, and I'm going to do my duty. And that's a, that's a great trait to have. And there are times when we should just do what God says. We may not feel it, but if He said it, we should be duty-bound to do it. But again, God is not satisfied with that. God is not satisfied with us just being duty-bound and doing the right thing or reacting in fear to Him because He's a powerful God. God, Jesus tells us, the most important thing is that you love God. That you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That does not, fear, duty does not equate with love. How do we get to that point where we love? We have to question whether this God is lovable. We have to decide that first. It can't be something our family decides for us. We can't say, well, my, my mom and dad always told me that God is good. That's good that they did. But do you believe that God is good? The pastor tells me that God is good. The Bible tells me that God is good. That prayer, God, you know, thank you for this food. God is great. God is good. You know, let us thank him for our food. Um, (laughs) Tells me that he's good, right? But we have to come to that conclusion for ourselves. God wants us to question his goodness so that we come to that conclusion for ourselves. He wants us to conclude that he's good because he wants a loving Relationship with us. Here's another sign of God's goodness. God's goodness is seen in His desire to empathize with our suffering by experiencing it firsthand. So we know that Jesus is going to go through all of this and He's going to the cross in order to atone for our sins. On that cross, our sins are going to. Those, who put, those of us who put our faith in Christ and what he's done, our sins are going to be, in a sense, transferred to him on the cross. His righteousness is going to be transferred to us. In that final judgment, rather than looking at us and our sins, God is going to see Christ and his righteousness. That's how we make it through God's judgment. So we know there is this grand purpose. It's all part of the renewal of all things, at Christ's return The people that will enter into his new creation are those who have been made right with him through Christ. We know all that, but that's not the only reason he suffers. The scripture tells us he suffers in order to identify with us. So in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we know that, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to, and it's been talking about Jesus as our high priest, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He can empathize with us. In Hebrews 12, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you're going through difficulty, part of the opposition from sinners is what we're reading about here. It's not the whole picture, but it's part of what it's talking about. In those times, if you've you've suffered injustice, you're suffering injustice, you've suffered abuse, brutality of other people, bullying, mocking, you can know that the great God, the great and all-powerful God, allowed that to happen to Himself so that He could empathize with you and so that you can know you are not alone in your suffering. You can know that. You're not alone in your suffering. So, you may conclude that God is great, all-powerful, in control. You may conclude that He is good, but you still may be asking, is God's good good for me? Is His good, meaning His good plan, Romans 8, 28, the good that He is about, or His goodness, His character, are either of those things, do they equate that it's going to be good for me, in my suffering, or in the distress that I feel over seeing others suffer. Here's what pastor and author Mike McKinley says, commenting specifically on this passage. Uh, first, in the quote I'm about to give you, before, right before it, he says, you know, that we have these great heroic stories, the stories of heroic kings who come and save the day, and he says, you know, in these heroic stories, what they're all pointing to is the king that we want. And it's in our hearts, it's the king that we need. And then he writes this Herod and his men dressed Jesus in a royal robe as a mocking response to his claim to be a king. But when a Christian thinks about Jesus in that robe, enduring the taunts and ridicule of the soldiers, we see the proof that Jesus is the heroic king we've always wanted, one who is willing to become one of us, one who is willing to go to suffering for us, one who's going to go to his death for us. He alone is worthy of all our allegiance and trust, both in all the difficulties and in all the details of our lives today. And as we face our eternal destiny, he's the king and he's our king. See, everything that Jesus is going through in this passage is not just for some general communication that God is good, that Jesus is good. It's personal, meaning personal for us. We're supposed to take it personally, what he's doing here. He wants you to know that he empathizes not with sin in general, not with suffering in general. He empathizes with your suffering, with your temptation, and mine as well. He's great, he's all-powerful, but imagine, if he's too great, if he's so high and mighty that he's not concerned with you personally and with your, needs, with your needs, how do you explain Jesus lowering himself like this? And if you think that he's not concerned with you personally, yeah, he's concerned with, kind of concerned, but he's not concerned with you personally. How, are, how might that be a diminishing of his greatness? You know, God, yeah, he cares about all these things. Why would he care about little old me? Why would he even think about me? Certainly, he's got other things to be concerned about. You think he's so small that he can't think about you because he's got too many things on his plate and he can't get around to thinking about you? How do you explain Jesus lowering himself like this if he doesn't care specifically for you. You can't explain it without realizing that God's good is also good for you. And it's not just good for you. It's great for you. So in those times when God's goodness towards you seems like a distant truth, when you're not sure about it, when you just don't feel it, you just don't have that sense that he's good, meditate on this passage. Remember Jesus allowing his enemies to beat him and question him and mock him and stand in judgment over him. He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he suffered for you and for the ones that you love. Remember the great God is good, and his good is great for you. In your suffering, or as you watch others suffer, remembering this reminds you, that you are not alone, and that in the end, we, we can't, you know, we can't get, we can't get a f- totally intellectually and emotionally satisfying answer to why, why am I going through this suffering? Why is somebody else going through this suffering? We, we, we really can't. I mean, the Bible, God has not revealed a, an answer, a clear answer that everybody goes, oh, that, that all makes sense. <laughs> Hasn't happened. He didn't do it. You can surmise at best, but the greatest philosophers in the end go, we really don't have a complete answer to this question. But whatever the answer is, if God were willing to give us the answer, whatever the answer is, it is going to align itself with what we see here, with His love, with His empathy for us, with His willingness to suffer for us. Remember, the great God is good. And his good, and his good is great for you. Let's begin our response now uh, by celebrating communion together. I invite you to take take the the cup there, pull the, the little plastic off and get the bread ready. You know, earlier in that evening, that first evening where he's being beaten up, he had met with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. He had taken the bread of Passover, he had broken it, he had given it to them, and he told them that that bread that they had been eating all their lives, that their people had been eating for now hundreds and hundreds of years, that that bread had always pointed to him. He said, this is my body, broken for you, let's eat. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Shed for the remission of your sins. Father, we thank you for your goodness displayed in your willingness to suffer for us. We thank you for your goodness displayed in the cross, your willingness to die in our place, to take our sins on you to the cross. So that we can have the righteousness of Christ. Father, help us to live in that story. At those times when we just don't feel it, that we can just remember that even though our feelings will not cooperate, our thoughts will not cooperate with where we want to be, we can know. We can go forward in faith, knowing that you are in control knowing that your control means all things will be made right, all things will be made new, that there is good in everything, and that that good and your goodness is good for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.